Join Jason and I and listen to our discussion about how to analyze a connection economy marketplace. You'll find out why a successful business can fail in the face of disruptive innovation, the logic behind creating a 10 times better content proposition that's already in the marketplace so that you end up at the top of the search engines and dominate the internet. It's Digital Bacon FM. Our marketing guru, the one, the only Stephen Barnes. Good morning, sir. Hello, sir. I'm a bit disoriented because it's Monday today, not Friday. So it feels a little bit strange to be doing this at the end of uh, the beginning of the week rather than at the end of the end of the week. Uh, I thought you were going to say that. I didn't give you a praiseworthy introduction. Well, you know, this is the cross I have to bear, Mr. Black. I'll go with us well. You know me. Marketing cool. and, of course, yeah. monopolies. Let's go, sir. Well, right. So just to recap, we're working our way through the materials known as the Monopoly Planner, uh, which augments the content that we've developed in uh, the Encyclopedia of Intelligent Content Marketing found mm. on www.buildamonopoly.com with the intention, obviously, to um, – provide the information that uh, people need to develop a very modern business model befitting uh, the dynamics and constructs of the connection economy rather than the um, uh, the industrial economy. Um, and over the last few weeks, we've sort of chipped our way at it. We're now in module two out of module, out of 10 module initiative. Mm. Uh, we're at chapter three out of a, a total of 36 chapters. Um, and we're looking at um, analyzing the marketplace, uh, essentially mm. doing um, the, the, the thinking behind uh, what's going on in the competitive landscape that uh, your business might be operating on. Mm. And last couple of weeks, we looked at the phenomenon um, that tend to be present in uh, the connection economy entrepreneur as opposed to the industrial economy entrepreneur. I think there's seven elements there. We finally chipped away at those. Um, and then uh, what I thought we'd do today is sort of move uh, on to the uh, sort of you know assessment of what the incumbent players in your space are doing, uh, essentially going through um, uh, research as to understand what kind of content that uh, the present incumbents in your niche uh, are putting out on the internet. So you can then firstly determine whether you've got the ability to develop a 10 times content proposition, 10 times content being this idea that you want to produce content that's 10 times better than everybody else's. So that ultimately you end up being firstly, first goal to be on the first page of the search engine results pages or Google and Bing and Yahoo and others. And secondly, recognizing that in order to get to number one spot aspirationally, your content literally has to be 10 times better than the other 10 items, the other nine items that are on that, that first page. So by adopting a philosophy of 10 times content, you know, you're setting yourself up to compete against uh, the incumbent players uh, through a very high quality content proposition that's designed to answer questions and help solve problems. And at the same time, recognizing that because you're going to create all those new relationships as a result of your problem-solving capability via the web, you've got an opportunity to disaggregate and re-aggregate value and come up with a, 
uh, a proposition that will allow you to leverage the fact that a sophisticated content platform that you developed into a new and interesting way of servicing the market that uh, your present competitors who are invariably operating in the industrial economy modus um, are not geared up to respond to. Mm. So, yeah, the competitive landscape assessment, number one, as a connection economy entrepreneur and what those qualities might be that you possess. And then B, how you go about sort of, you know, doing an assessment of what the incumbents are all about so that you can then um, come up with something new, interesting and remarkable. Right. Okay. Incumbent players. So, incumbent players. Yeah. So, 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 so the thing, the thing to appreciate is that um, Professor Clay Christensen, uh, articulated oh, 15 or 20 years ago, something called the innovator's dilemma. And in broad terms, the innovator's dilemma is this idea that if you are already successful doing what you do, and you've been doing successfully what you do for a very long period of time, and you you know retain your success, essentially you are um, sort of you know blocked out or blinkered, if you will, from the prospect that uh, someone who's got something new, interesting and remarkable that's going to compete against you, um, you know, actually poses a, a competitive threat. Um, because, you know, if you only know how to do what you do well and it's always served you well, then you literally don't have the sort of point of view um, to be able to, uh, you know, determine ultimately whether or not what's coming up through the connection economy entrepreneur modus is truly a competitive threat. It's a kind of like the bias of no comparison in a sense. So the innovator's dilemma from, of Claire Christensen talks about kind of, you know, uh, five, five types of phenomena that are at play uh, that you can, as a connection economy entrepreneur seeking to disrupt, you can leverage uh, through your understanding to come up with um, something that is, uh, is novel and will give you the ability to compete against non-consumption and then begin to ship away at market leaders. So. The Innovator's Dilemma and Clay Christensen's work basically talks about something called sustaining innovations. It talks about disruptive innovations. It talks about efficiency innovations. It talks about, as we've done before, jobs to be done. Uh, and also developing a purpose brand that, you know, your rationale for existing is, is ultimately to serve a purpose. And you engineer your total proposition. Uh, having reverse engineered that total purpose and therefore you, you become by definition a purpose brand and um, without wanting to get too quickly into that uh, a classic purpose brand is uh, well let me ask you this uh, let's say you're going to move back to Hong Kong and you uh, and you've got a uh, an apartment that you're going to move into and it's completely empty of furniture and you need to be able to fill that uh, apartment with furniture very quickly, uh, ideally through, you know, a single visit to a single uh, source provider uh, and come up with, you know, a really stylish way that's fully sort of, you know, design integrated, uh, that's relatively cost effective uh, and is going to get you, you know, a, a nice place to live that you could very quickly be having dinner, party, dinner parties uh, at, within the space of seven or eight days. Which single location in, in Hong Kong would you go to to be able to achieve that outcome? Mate, that's a four-letter word. It's I-K-E-A and don't dare go there. <laughs> well, that's, okay. It's a brand, yes, and it's I, a solution. It a, it's, a, it's a quintessential purpose brand, exactly. So, um, Casting aspersions on, the, on my design. 
no, no, I know you've got uh, superb taste in that regard, but, you know, um, I'm just a Joe schmuck and I would definitely uh, head to Ikea if I had that problem because no, they've, won, they've won that battle in my mind already. Mm. So, uh, so, yeah, Clay Christensen comes up with the idea of a purpose brand. So as a connection economy entrepreneur looking at what the incumbents are all about, ask yourself, are they a purpose brand? And if they're not a real purpose brand like that, how can you take uh, either – the entirety of what they're doing and and, um, and converted into a purpose brand or can you niche down from a, a section of what they're doing and turn that into a purpose brand obviously delivering a content proposition that answers questions and helps solve problems so so that that's um you know as you undergo your content audit to understand what the incumbents are all about think about a purpose brand um claire christensen talks about jobs to be done and um once you understand what the job to be done is, then you have the ability to um, uh, understand what it is that you sell. And once you know what you sell, you've got the ability to develop your proposition on the back of that. And uh, the classic example of trying to sort of determine what a job's to, what a how a job to be done can be assessed, and we will talk about this in much greater detail in, in future shows, Jason. So I'll just sort of skirt across it now. Mm. Uh, the classic example uh, cited in uh, Clay Christensen's work for jobs to be done was the whole idea of milkshakes at McDonald's. Uh, one minute short story, uh, McDonald's wanted to understand why their single biggest breakfast selling item was the milkshake, which is clearly not you know, a classic breakfast item on, on anybody's uh, expected sort of list of um, dishes to be served uh, first thing in the morning. Um, so they commissioned uh, a whole bunch of boffins to essentially do a classic sort of, you know, time and motion study to ascertain fundamentally um, why uh, McDonald's were selling milkshakes at, uh, you know, at the, at, the, uh, at the most prevalent level at a time of day when you wouldn't expect that to be the case. Mm. So upshot was that um, whilst McDonald's ultimately believed they were selling a refreshing beverage that complemented their stable of other um, uh, dishes that they were yeah, dishes that were selling or items that were selling uh, at breakfast time. Actually, the research revealed that uh, the reason why they were selling milkshakes had nothing to do with quenching a thirst per se. Um, why they were selling milkshakes was that essentially the people who were buying those milkshakes were uh, coming into the uh, McDonald's restaurants in the morning buying the milkshake, uh, and then they had a, a, an 18 to a 20 minute drive to work. And so what they were doing was stopping to get something in their stomach, but choosing the milkshake because it gave them something to toy with as they were able to drive to work. And by the time they got to work, it was full. Uh, it was finished. They were full from it. It satiated whatever sort of, you know, hunger they might have had at that time of day. Um, and it uh, just happened to fill the commuting time beautifully. Um, try and sort of do that with an egg McMuffin or try and do that with um, – you know, hash browns and uh, and he cites also alternative sort of, you know, competitors, if you will, to the job, to that particular job to be done. And uh, when they asked the right questions, they said, well, yeah, we tried we tried a, a banana one day, but that didn't work because, you know, you've got the skin and it's all messy. Or uh, we tried uh, donuts another day. Well, that was a mess because you get jam everywhere and crowded stuff sticky and it's all gooey and so in the final analysis the job to be done to complete you know the um the, the, the time that it takes to commune to work ultimately was uh, was addressed by mcdonald's milkshake which uh, why is why 
their research revealed that there's a single most popular um, item sold during breakfast shifts uh, at McDonald's restaurants in in the US. Mm. So there's an example of uh, of a job to be done and how you go about thinking of um, um, what it is that your customer is actually paying a solution for. It might be very different from what you you think okay. uh, they're actually uh, paying a solution for. But, so you do that work and you can. But that, that that now then means they only did the research after it was the most popular. They didn't go out with the intention of making it the most popular, saying, well, this is the, the, the target demographic and what they want to use this product for. So how do you, how do you steal a march on people and um, guess what they want to use it for in advance? Well, I cited that example to give you an indication of what you know very often a job to be done is uh, when you don't really think it might be what it is mm. so um I I, I, I I did say long story short so i don't propose mm. to get into sort of the machinations of that but mm. um as i say we will cover jobs to be done okay. in greater detail later on so just to illustrate the point when mm. you're a connection economy entrepreneur wanting to uh, assess the market landscape and uh, the competitive landscape and you're doing your uh, research when I call the content audit of uh, the, the, the present players, knowing that if you can put a content proposition down that's 10 times better than the incumbent players, then you can go into that um, dynamic with a very high level of confidence that whatever business is originating by the internet, you've got a pretty decent chance of being able to get some of it, and that's where you want to start. Um, mm. So Clay, Clay Christensen also talks about um, sustaining innovations, disruptive innovations, and efficiency innovations. And um, sustaining innovation is ultimately the sort of the death knell for the industrial economy business because a sustaining innovation is kind of like, well, we're going to innovate, but we're only going to innovate along the same trajectory that we've always innovated on, which is to make last year's product better for this year. Um, the problem with that is that uh, it doesn't lead to any growth. Ultimately, all you're going to do if you're an industrial economy operator uh, working with sustaining innovations is cannibalize your, your historical revenue, so to speak, or cannibalize your historical market share. Certainly, you can get um, more revenues out of uh, developing sustaining innovations, but normally the people who bought last year's uh, innovation don't buy next year's innovation. Unless they're you know absolute aficionados like uh, uh, a large number of Apple um, fanboys tend to be, but but in the main, mm-hmm. uh, uh, industrial economy operators are looking at innovations that represent sustaining what they already do, rather than coming up with something new, interesting, and uh, disruptive. So you know look for uh, the dynamic of sustaining innovation and what your competitors are all about, uh, and then a disruptive innovation is essentially. An innovation that comes along and, and, in a sense, reinvents the way that uh, a product or a service has traditionally traditionally been provided. And to uh, amount to a disruptive innovation, what you need to do is kind of do the thinking, all the kind of stuff that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, uh, and then um, come up with uh, a proposition that you will be able to service uh, within a, a, a part of the niche that you operate in, where fundamentally you know that there are people that have got questions that need answering and so, are looking for solutions to problems that are not actually being serviced via the web. Um, and if you can come up with uh, such a, uh, an innovation that's disruptive, you would in that case then be competing against non-consumption uh, rather than competing against the big players competitively 
uh, you're just competing against the fact that right now there is a need for that capability in the marketplace, but the incumbents are not addressing that need in, in a sophisticated and interesting way by the web. Mm. Um, so like a, an example of a disruptive innovation for us, um, uh, which is all really driven by Claire Christensen's work, is you know the idea that uh, we started off by uh, understanding that there were people in Hong Kong who, from a, a content perspective on the web, were simply not not getting their questions answered or having their problems solved. They didn't really know how to go about um, mm. uh, doing that because when they were searching for solutions to those problems and answers to those questions, all they were getting was a very fragmented uh, collection of website resources that you know didn't really take you anywhere. It was like conceptual walking down the aisles of a law library and at random sort of just picking up a, picking up a book and then and then opening um opening it sort of generally at a, at a chapter heading that sounds vaguely sort of aligned with what it is that you're trying to accomplish and hoping expect that the information that you need right and the money is there um so we knew that people uh, in hong kong that were say long stay foreign nationals who wanted to become permanent residents there was no reasonable source of information that would allow people to you know navigate the process of uh, of moving from a visa scenario to permanent residency we knew for example that there were residents of hong kong who had employment visas who wanted to establish a join their own business um, in order to do that they need to change the visa category from sponsored employment through to business investments as an entrepreneur and again our research our content audit revealed that there was nobody in hong kong that knew how to do this stuff that was actually developing an interesting uh, solution to those problems via the web so anyway there was this half there was five or six different types of individuals in hong kong who were basically unable to consume what they needed to consume to be able to help them solve their problems so by filling that void uh, with high quality information and resources that allow them to drill squarely down on you know, what it is that they were conducting their web searches for in the first place. We were able to fill that vacuum, therefore compete against non-consumption, uh, and we stole a march on 15% of the immigration services market, literally just walking in by publishing, creating new relationships, generating um, literally millions of dollars of revenues and, uh, and empowering ourselves with the resources to turn our big guns now to the balance of the market, which is the corporate market being 85% of the uh, market by value. So there's an example of a disruptive innovation where you can against non-consumption uh, and you uh, at the same time steal a march on your uh, industrial economy competitors firstly in terms of the content platform that you put down but secondly in terms of the ongoing ability to generate revenues out of that segment of the market that uh, your competitors have historically overlooked because um, they haven't been interested in it because that's part and parcel of the innovators dilemma mm. Okay. And then finally, there is uh, those businesses that engage in efficiency innovations. And, and the efficiency innovation is the ultimate death knell for uh, an industrial economy business because uh, unlike sustaining innovations uh, and disruptive innovations, efficiency innovations is just the innovations that, 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 that amounts to the enterprise doing what they've always done, but just doing it more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And the problem with the problem with efficiency innovations, as Claire Christensen says, is that um, efficiency innovations all they do is ultimately uh, manage internal rate of return for the capital that's deployed in in the businesses. And when you're uh, managing internal rate of return as a bean counter, fundamentally what you're looking at is okay. 
what's the rate? What's the rate of return that I can get over, let's say, uh, let's say, a sustaining innovation or or, or or a product innovation? What's what, what time frame are we looking to a get our money back and b then be able to yield the profits for? And how long can we expect to yield the profits from that uh, efficiency innovation? So when you're doing a, an IRR, internal rate of return assessment, you know the bean counters will always come up with a scenario that says, if we spend our money now or we make this efficiency in this way, then we're going to get uh, our money back plus our profit in three to five years. Um, if we do a dis- and that's for sure, that's certain. We know that because historically, you know, that's that's that, that's um, that's been our experience. On the other hand, if we're going to do something completely left field and engage in something, you know, like a disruptive innovation, firstly, we've got no visibility on whether this thing is going to be successful or not. So it might amount to a complete loss of capital. Um, but, but secondly, and most importantly, that disruptive innovations usually take between seven and 10 years before you start to get, you know, pseudo monopoly profits out of it, where you get, you know, the long term upside for uh, the investment that you've made in, in this instance in terms of efficiencies. So because the bean counters are always going to prevail and you're never going to be able to beat the argument that says, you know, uh, an unsure bet that's going to take a minimum of seven years before you start getting a decent return on your investment versus a so-called sure bet that's going to get all our uh, capital return and we're going to get, uh, you know, all profits out of that over the course of, say, a maximum of five years then efficiency innovations are ultimately going to uh, win the day and the industrial economy operators are never going to be able to argue properly that they should be engaging in disruptive innovations, which is another reason why you don't see um, these sort of oil tanker-like um, large industrial economy concerns turn on a dime, so to speak, and then suddenly start going, traveling in another direction. All the sort of corporate inertia that's just moving them to do the things in the way that they've always done, not least sort of, you know, bored, blind, willful blindness as to, you know, potentially what the future might hold for them, means that as a uh, connection economy upstart wanting to go and steal some of their lunch, you've got all of these um, phenomena that are working very squarely in your favor. And so uh, that means that you're going to get uh, some breathing room uh, and more than likely be able to meet your first level of success before they start to pay an interest in you. And that by then, it's probably too late. You're at the worst with a secure the niche that you wanted to secure and then they can expand that out of that into logical adjacencies accordingly like we're doing or um, you become a prime target for an acquisition because um, you know the big players don't want to uh, uh, compete against this kind of stuff they'd rather just snap up the uh, uh, the upstart and either leverage it properly and develop a completely new future business out of it which in the main doesn't happen or just buy it up to shut it down in which case you know you've got your return on your investments you've exited your business mm-hmm. and but what they do now is completely up to them, more full than if, you know, they've paid you a few million US dollars to shut you down. You're laughing all the way to the bank, are you not? Well, I was reading something on Mark Cuban this morning, great article about him on um, on BBC. Obviously, they don't mention the person yeah. that dyes his hair. They should have a chat with that person too. Uh, <laughs> but but anyway, um, he, a, a serial entrepreneur in his own right, he created a platform called Broadcast.com uh, in, yeah, the, in the I late 90s. It. Sold it to yeah. Google for, I think, $4 billion uh, or Yahoo. Yeah. He sold it to one of them. And then they just got overtaken by um, YouTube and, and YouTube became uh, considerably more popular. And they just said, done, finished. 
I mean, how do you account yeah. how do you account to your shareholders for such a cock up? Well, I wouldn't say it's a cock, cock up. I think, you know, firstly, a, a large organization that can drop $4 billion onto a business like that, they're taking a calculated risk. Um, and ultimately, those deals are funded through stock market valuations and a bit of sort of monkey business as to how that value falls and how mm. it's reflected uh, in the bank account of the party that's doing the selling. Um, but there, that, that's a good example of how, you know, you've got what, what was, you know, fundamentally a... Um, uh, a well-established, I wouldn't say connection economy, they are now obviously, but, mm. but back then there were a, a a business that were in the internet space, and they sure. they viewed they viewed you know broadcast.com and what they were all about through the prism of what they thought the future was going to be all about. Mm. Uh, and if I understand it properly, and I guess I'm happy to stand to be corrected here, um, basically broadcast.com took the ability for uh, let's say uh, really interesting. Um, content that had a, a natural audience uh, that was not being serviced, they had the ability to sort of broadcast and take that content into that natural audience uh, and uh, where they weren't being properly serviced previously. But I guess what they didn't anticipate was the, the absolute proliferation and the significance of, of user-created content via YouTube. Um, and now if you think about sort of, you know, what broadcast.com were doing in the late 1990s, uh, and your ability to consume that content versus what you can do today via YouTube and you know the well every type of content in the, under in, under the sun is uh, is to be found on YouTube now. I don't think that the uh, broadcast.com deal didn't uh, sorry I readily anticipate that it was more going to be about user generated content and the YouTubers platform and that's where they came came uh, unstuck. Mm. But then again, you see uh, a four billion dollar uh, investment. Those things happen all the time at the top end of town, right? And, uh, and, and they don't all work out. Usually they don't work out, with Yahoo being a classic example, because they've mm. either lost their mission after acquisition or um, or they, they're unable to integrate the various business units in any kind of meaningful sense because, you know, the business has just grown too big. Mm. So one of the other things about uh, probably just to tie this, this section of the, uh, of, the, of the talk up, one of the other interesting things about the whole um, – uh, area of um, uh, disruptive innovation is the fact that you uh, don't have to be a big player. You only have to be a small player. You you don't you know you don't have to be um, uh, massively resourced. All things considered, you can be completely nimble. Uh, what you do need to be able to do is to uh, assess the competitive landscape in terms of what the incumbent players are all about via the fact phenomenon of the innovators dilemma uh, and then ask four questions right what's the job to be done and how will customers choose us and what can what can we do that others can't and what will everyone how will everyone know what product does the job best so um because you can be on the outside as, a, as an upstart looking in to the incumbents and trying to sort of determine what your ultimate proposition is going to look like if you address your mind to those four questions after you've uh, done your content audit and you've applied thinking in terms of, Jay, of Clay Christensen's work as regards the innovator's dilemma and what the incumbent plays are all about, you, you really can come up with, as we did, something new, interesting and remarkable. Fantastic. Mr. Barnes, thank you very much. Always a pleasure to chat. You have an absolutely awesome week, sir. Digital Bacon FM. Are you focusing on anticipating and meeting the future needs of your customers? After this show, I'm sure you are. 
Join us next time to find out how to compete against non-consumption. <laughs>